Welcome to this week's message. We hope you enjoy this teaching from Pastor Chris Dirksen, the executive pastor here at Southland Church. For more information about this message and other resources, visit MySelfland.com. Now we'll get into part five of our series on Romans. And, uh, and so, so far in this series, we basically talked about one thing because basically the first three chapters of Romans, chapter one, chapter two, and chapter three up to verse 20, is all basically bad news, okay? And it's all the bad news about how, how bad we are and how much we need a Savior, okay? And so we've been taking in pretty big chunks. I even got through an entire chapter in one message there a couple weeks ago. And we're just going to slow it down a little bit here today uh, because we're finally getting to the good news, and I figure we should spend some time on the good news. So we're going to go through five verses today, Romans chapter 3, 21 to 25. And then in, in the next message, we'll actually probably go back to those same verses because there's a bunch in there. After hearing all of Paul's first three chapters there about the problem, I think, it's, I think it's really important that we focus in a little bit on the solution and what Jesus has done for us. And I think that's going to be awesome. So I'm going to read you uh, Romans 3, 21 to 25. And, uh, and then we'll pray. And then we'll, we'll look at this. We're going to look at actually basically today we're going to spend most of our time on one word, which is justified, which is a great word. And I hope that, uh, that you love more and are more grateful for what God has done for you at the end of this message than you were coming in. But anyway, Romans 3, verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. In other words, we've been talking about this whole thing, the Jew and the Gentile, right? That's been a big part of Paul's argument so far. Both Jews and Gentiles, Gentiles being us non-Jews, both Jews and Gentiles need saving, right? Because that was a big issue in his day. And so he says, for there's no distinction. Speaking of between Jews and non-Jews, there's no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. All right, let's pray, and then we'll start to look at this. Lord Jesus, we just want to start by thanking you again. And I pray that this would not be just something we do out of habit. I pray that this would not just become something we do as a perfunctory uh, rite here in the church, but that we would truly have hearts of gratitude for what you did for us on the cross. I pray that this morning by your Holy Spirit, you could actually touch us with a spirit of gratitude, that you would lift a little bit of the veil of hardness that sometimes crusts over our hearts where we begin to take for granted the amazing work you did for us on the cross. I pray that these words in Romans would come alive for us afresh. And really, again, all I have is words. It has to be your spirit moving in our hearts, touching each of us where we're at, and helping us to love you more. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I want to zone in. I want to zone in on uh, verse 23 of chapter 3 today. And it's one of the more famous verses uh, in the Bible. And Sarah, if you just want to put up the next one, because just, I, just, I just want to shrink it down so there's less words up there. Uh, I just, I really want to focus in on verses 23 and 24 today. For there is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. And I already talked there about the no distinction part, meaning between the Jew and the Gentile. And then we get to the next part there. For all have sinned, uh, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And again, this is such a 
famous verse. Most of us know this verse. Most of us have memorized this verse at some point. And uh, it's one of the more popular verses often used when people are uh, evangelizing, you know, lost loved ones or friends. And I think, I, I guess my fear a little bit, not really a fear, but my prayer today by the Holy Spirit is again that these words would actually come alive to us and not just be dead words. Because sometimes, sometimes some of the things in the church, and especially as we move into the Christmas season, there's things in the Bible that we've gone over so many times and we've heard the words so many times that sometimes it can just become almost empty. It's just a thing. We've been here before a thousand times. But when he says there, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, for all have sinned, that's a, that's a serious thing. And that's what we've been talking about the last few weeks. We've all sinned. And last week, one of the things we talked about is how this issue of sin is actually far bigger than most of us actually have taken into account of or that most of us feel. Most of us have a picture of sin that is far too small. We view sin as just a short list of don'ts. Okay, we view sin as just a short list of don'ts, and there's a few right at the top of our list. You know, if you look at porn, if you lie, if you steal, if you murder, many of it, most of us don't struggle with that one. But there's, you know, a few up there. You know, don't lie, don't steal, don't swear, you know, don't get drunk, don't do drugs. We have a few of these don'ts, and when we do those don'ts, that's sin. Okay, and absolutely, certainly it's true, those things are sin, absolutely, and we need to repent of them when we do them, and we need to get help, and we need to overcome those things, absolutely. But our picture of sin is far too small, because basically what we think is if we can work really hard and not do those things, if I can just work really hard in my life and not lie and not swear and, and not lose my temper, if there's just a few things and not look at porn, if I can just really work hard at not doing those things, I'm doing okay, and what we looked at last week is it's not actually true. The issue of sin is far bigger than just the few lists of don'ts we have to keep ourselves from doing. Recall that the most important commandment in the law, Deuteronomy 6 verse 5, is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's what you were made for. You and me were made for one reason, that is to love God. So when we don't love God wholeheartedly, that's actually the biggest sin. So we have this idea of a few don'ts. As long as I stay away from those, I'm doing okay. And, and, and yet we miss the absolute biggest one, which is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Deuteronomy 6 verse 5, of course, repeated by Jesus in the Gospels. And, uh, and so I think in many cases, I think some of the worst sinners are the ones who don't think they're sinners or who, who don't think they're sinning. It's apathetic Christians often. Where we have our list of don'ts and we're pretty good at not doing those don'ts and we feel to ourselves very pious and smug, like I'm doing okay. And in the meantime, we go through our lives and we have very little love for God. We basically live for ourselves. We live to have that comfortable life, a nicer house, a nicer retirement. With these, and not that any of those things is bad, absolutely not. But we live for those things instead of for God. And we feel good about ourselves because there's four or five don'ts over here that we are pretty good at not doing. And yet we've missed the most important thing that we were made for, which is you were made to love God and to glorify him with your life. See, you and I were made for something far bigger than just not doing some things. God, God didn't just make us to not do something. He didn't just make us to not murder. So every day that I, get, that I manage to get through the day without killing someone, I can go, oh, I'm living the life God made for me, right? Like he made me to not murder. He made me to not lie. It's not what he made me for. 
He made me to love him wholeheartedly and to give him glory by the way I live my life. So just not doing this short list of don'ts has nothing to do with living for his glory. And so many of us have missed the purpose for which he made us, which is the worst sin. To miss the very purpose for which he made us. So sin is a far, 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 far bigger issue than just a few do's or don'ts. It includes not loving God wholeheartedly, which, of course, none of us do every day. So right there, your sin meter, which you thought, okay, I've done a few sins in my life, when you realize every day I live, that I don't live for the glory of God. I live for myself. I don't love God wholeheartedly. Every day that I do that, that is a sin. Your sin just went up. And then you recognize that the next most important commandment after that one is to love your neighbor as yourself. It's not just don't look at porn. It's not just don't lie. It's actually in every interaction with people, love people as much as yourself. Put them first. And you realize every interaction you have where you put your own desires, your own selfish desires, money, uh, impatience, anger, whatever, anytime you put others down or don't treat them with love the way God wants you to do that's also a sin and suddenly your sin meter goes it's like everything I've ever done right even when I thought I was doing okay our very motives everything is stained by sin we realize that we are sinful sin isn't just a few things that we if we can just not do them we're not sinful sin infects everything in us it's this nature it's this nature that makes us unable to love the way we're supposed to. It's this, it's this nature that makes us naturally self-centered, to constantly live for myself instead of for God and for others. It's in me. It's a disease. And so when Paul says there, all have sinned, and then he goes to the next one, and fall short of the glory of God, he's not just making some trite statement like, everybody messes up sometimes, they lie, they steal, they swear. He's not, I mean, yeah, it includes that. But he's talking about something far bigger. We've actually fallen short of the glory of God. We have fallen far short of what he's called us to live for. And in fact, it is impossible. It is impossible. I mean, it might be somewhat possible. Even that's probably impossible. Even that's impossible to just to keep your whole life pure of doing the don'ts. Even that's impossible. But it might be somewhat possible to, by self-control, keep yourself most of the time from doing the don'ts. But when you realize that there's so much more to loving God and what you were made for than just not doing the don'ts, when you realize it means in every day loving God with everything, living for his glory, and every day loving others, you know, more than yourself and putting others first, you realize impossible for us to do it. That's not our nature. Our sinful nature will not allow us to do that. We are by nature uh, selfish and sinful. And so we talked about that last week. And that's why we are basically doomed. When you actually realize what sin is, you realize that we are utterly and completely doomed. None of us can come even close to scratching the surface. And the analogy I used last week was of a duck trying to be a squirrel or a squirrel trying to be a duck. You just absolutely cannot, you cannot be the person God wants you to be or that he made you to be with your sin nature. It's impossible for us to love like that all the time. Impossible apart from, apart from his help. And so when you finally come into a realization of that, you realize that we are all utterly doomed and on our way to hell. Don't leave yet, because that would be a bad way to go home, okay? When you actually realize what sin is, you realize we are all utterly doomed and on our way to hell. There is nothing we can do about it. Now, the beautiful thing about God and his heart 
is that God in his gracious loving kindness does not take pleasure in punishing wicked people. Now, this verse came to mind this week. Is he, and I just got to jump there and we'll go back to Romans. Ezekiel 33, verse 11. As I live, declares the Lord God. So he's, he's, it's kind of like taking an oath. As I live, he's kind of promising on himself. He's, this is a serious statement. I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Is that not an incredible statement? You realize how messed up we are. That God in heaven could just be done. He could just really just be done with us all. Okay, I mean, he could just, he could just be like, you know, this is, this is hopeless as useless, these wicked, rebellious people who, do, who refuse to love and turn to me. But he says this, I have no pleasure. That's not his heart. I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel. And so God in his loving kindness, in his heart, he does not take pleasure in punishing the wicked. If he doesn't have to, he doesn't want to. That's not happy time for him. And so he sent his son Jesus. He was, he is so loving, he is so good that he actually took, because we could not save ourselves, because we are stained by sin, even when we do good, our motives are not loving so often. Even when we try to do good, we mess up because it's our nature to sin. That's who we are. So we could not save ourselves. And so him, though, in, in, his, in his desire to save us, because he takes no pleasure in punishing us, he actually took the solution on himself and said, I have to solve the problem. I have to pay the price. I have to take the pain on me. And I have to rescue them myself. I have to do the whole thing. Okay, and so he sent Jesus to die on the cross to pay the penalty for our completely warped nature, which basically makes everything we do in our sin, in our, in our lives, apart from Christ, sinful. And he says, I'm going to take it on myself, okay? And so Paul now starts in Romans chapter 3, verses 23 and 24. He started, well, starting 21 really, but we're going to look at verse 23 now. Paul starts to break down for us what exactly all did Jesus do for us? When he died on the cross, this deliverance from our sin nature, and he says a whole bunch of things packed into a few verses. He's going to go on and expand on them and pull them out in the rest of the book of Romans and in the other chapters. I just want to look at, at one here today, okay? But he says this, for, the, for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God, we're all messed up and God needed to come save us. But now he's going to start to tell us, what is it exactly that Jesus did for us on the cross when he died for us? Okay? And the first thing he says, and are justified by his grace as a gift. Okay? Justified. If we repent of our sins, if we take stock of ourselves and look at ourselves and say, we fall badly, badly short, and no amount of effort is ever going to save us. When we realize that and we repent for our sins, we say, I don't want this anymore. I don't want to live like this. I don't want to live on my own anymore. I don't want to do it on my own anymore. And we turn to Jesus. You are the only solution. You must become my God, my master, my savior. When we do that, one of the first things he does is says is he justifies us, okay? Now, what does that mean, justify, okay? So we're getting into some theological words here in Romans, okay? And Paul's not trying to make things difficult for us. He's just using uh, words, in, in this case, a legal terminology to try, and, to try and capture something for us, to try and help us understand something, okay? And so what does it mean when he says that Jesus justifies us, all right? Well, the Greek word there translated justified is the Greek word dikaio, okay? Said with a Mennonite accent, all right? Dikaio, 
okay? And basically what it means is to render innocent. It's, it's what a judge would do. That's literally what this is. Paul is just borrowing a legal term from, uh, from his culture, from his time period there. And, and, and so to justify someone, this word dikai'a'o, what it first of all just means is to acquit someone of the charges against them. So if a person, you're standing in front of a judge, okay, and there's a bunch of charges against you, okay, and in this case, the charges are serious, and the sentence is death, okay, because the charges are that serious. And then the judge says, you know, you're acquitted, all the charges against you are canceled. You're acquitted. You will, do not have to bear the penalty. That's what this word justified means, first of all, okay? It means acquitted of the charges. So here are us standing before God, fully warped, not just a few don'ts. It's not like we're basically good people. Don't listen to our culture. We're basically good people. We've done a few of the don'ts, so that's bad. And then Jesus had to forgive us of that. No, no, no. We are fully depraved and sinful to our very core so that even the good things we try to do are, are often done with bad motives. And so we are to our core sinful and wicked and evil and rebellious and, and making it even worse, we don't even think it's that bad. And so we kind of nonchalantly stand in front of God and just say, well, I haven't killed anyone as if that's good. And he says, whoa. I mean, you just have no, you have no idea of my holiness to be able to stand before me nonchalantly and try and make the excuse, at least I haven't killed someone, okay? But we are wicked, rebellious to our core, and yet because Jesus went to the cross, he paid the penalty for our sins, so the judge can actually justify us. He can actually look at us and say, you're actually acquitted. You deserve to die and more. But you deserve to die, but you are justified. I wipe it all out. That penalty has been put on Jesus, and you have been acquitted of all the charges against you. That is the first thing. When Paul says you've been justified, it means you have been acquitted of the charges that, that you would otherwise stand before God and be accountable for on Judgment Day. Now, um, and we'll get into a little more because, again, how can God be just to do that? And that comes up later in verse 25, which we won't get to today, how Jesus bears our penalty away, okay? But the first thing justified is, is just acquitted of the charges. But there's a second thing there, and if you read a lot of the commentaries and a lot of the theologians, they'll tell you that this word uh, in this context here, dikai a'o, it means more than just acquitted of the charges. It also has this sense of being declared righteous, okay? And I've got question marks there because I want to explore. First of all, the text itself does not say declared righteous. This is what theologians say the word means, okay? So I have question marks there, and the reason I have question marks there is because I think a lot of times us as Christians, we use these terms and we have no idea what we're talking about. So it's like, okay, God, did, okay, God has acquitted us of the charges. That makes sense. That's what the word actually literally means. And then, but then we go one step further and we say, and it also means that God has declared us to be righteous. And we just kind of start throwing that around. But have we ever stopped to think, what does that mean that he's declared us righteous? And uh, in order to examine this further, I'm going to first look at two things it's not. And because the good news of what it actually is, is I think better than what we sometimes take it to mean. But in order to just make that clear, at the end of this message, I want to give you kind of a new statement. Rather than using declared righteous, I want to give you something else I think makes more sense for how we talk and understand things. But first, I want to look at two things declared righteous does not mean. So this will at first look like bad news. You're like, this is justification. This is supposed to all be good news. Okay, well, first of all, I just want to show you what it doesn't mean so we don't go to extremes and that we actually see how God really loves us in our sin. 
And then we'll see what justified really means, what declared righteous really means, okay? So the first thing when theologians say that God declares you to be righteous, what they do not mean, because sometimes they use this term and people don't realize what they're actually using it to mean. They do not mean or does not mean that declared righteous does not mean you have been made righteous, okay? There's a big difference there. You might say, well, now you're kind of, you're just playing with details. Let me explain this. Because there's a fringe Christian teaching, and I say fringe, it's not in the core of, of what it means to be an evangelical, but it's on the fringes of Christian orthodoxy, which basically teaches that the moment you give your life to Christ, you have been made righteous, okay? But the fact of the matter that is that that is not true because we all keep messing up. Is that not true? Has anyone here ceased to sin since you gave your life to Christ? Okay, just looking. I thought I saw a hand there for a second, but it might have been my wife. No, just kidding. Um, <laughs> have you ceased to sin since you got saved? No, you haven't ceased to sin. And if, I mean, if we've been made righteous and we continue to sin, then that is really bad news because I'm righteous, but I'm still screwing up. That's horrible news. Okay? You, have, you and I have not, the moment you give your life to Christ, you have not been made righteous. In fact, being made righteous is a process that's going to go on. It's called sanctification. That's a different theological word. But being made righteous is a process that God is going to take you on now for the rest of your life, and it will not be completed until you are resurrected. Once we have a resurrected bodies, you will have no more sin nature in you. You will have no more ability or desire or capability even to sin. Praise God. That's good news. But we're not there yet now. So there's a day coming when you won't even want to sin. And in the meantime, God's going to take you through painful things, and he's going to use different experiences, and he's going to discipline you, as we'll look at a little bit later in this, mar- in the, in this marriage, in this message. Very odd thing to say in the middle of a message. But anyway, he's going to take you through things to grow you in holiness, to grow you in righteousness. The Bible is very clear about this, which all just means that when it says he justifies you, He has justified you, but he hasn't made you righteous yet. And that's good news because we aren't righteous yet, all right? And this is confirmed in Scripture in many places. 1 John 1, 8 to 10. The Apostle John said this, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So we could just stop the reading right there. Verse 9, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we Say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't think God is a liar, and I don't want to call him one. So we all still struggle with sin, and sometimes some of these extreme teachers will say that this passage isn't for Christians, but I want you to notice that the Apostle John says, we. So unless they mean that the Apostle John was not a Christian, he is talking to Christians because he's including himself and he's including us. If we say we have no sin. So we do still have sin. We're in this process, okay? And re- the reason this is important is because sometimes people take this whole declared righteousness thing. They think, okay, God's made me righteous. And that means I don't have to confess my sins anymore. Well, the Bible is very clear that even after you become a Christian, saying sorry to God is still an important part of living with him. It's a relationship. I mean, my wife, LaDawn, we've been married 14 years. I've messed up two or three times not last count. Just going through my devos, you know, today, just to make sure. Yeah, two, I think three. Um, hundred, maybe, thousand. Um, and so now when I sin, now, because I know what some people are saying. They're saying, well, are you saying that, you know, it, it's not that every time you sin, because this is the question people always come up with. Well, are you saying that if I don't confess my sin, like let's say I swear and then I get in a car accident, 
Now I'm going to hell because I'm not saved because I wasn't forgiven of it. Okay, that's insane. That's stupid, okay? That really is. And I don't want to use that word too liberally, but let's just use it here today. That's stupid, okay? I'm not saying here that every time you sin, if you don't confess it, you've lost your salvation. Absolutely not. Just like when I make a mistake in my marriage, I don't go, oh, we're divorced. Oh my goodness, I've been with such a bad husband today. Now we're divorced, it's over, it's all over, and I'm so worried that she's going to leave me. No. I just say sorry, because sorry is the right thing to say when you've done something stupid. And it brings life back into the relationship, and then you can make up, which is awesome when you're married, okay? And don't read too far into that, just, we'll just keep moving, okay? But same with God, okay? It's the same with God. Okay? You mess up, you say sorry. It actually brings life to the relationship. It's not about losing your salvation. It's about life and relationship. It's about saying sorry, and that's an important thing to do because we haven't been made righteous. We're in a process. We have been justified, but justified doesn't mean made righteous, not yet, okay? And sanctification, I, I mentioned sanctification there just a moment ago. I'll just put it up there for those of you who care about the meaning of theological words. Uh, sanctification, not justification, is the process that God is working in the believer over the course of your life to grow you in righteousness. It will not be completed until the resurrection, at which point you will no longer have a sin nature and will finally be without sin. That's sanctification. That's not justification. And it's an ongoing process. Now, let's go to a second thing. You know what? Just leave that up there for just a second, Sarah. Just, I, some people might be writing. I heard people writing furiously, and then they get upset at me later. You didn't leave it up long enough. Okay? So for those C personalities... There, you make sure you get the commas in the right spot in the period. <laughs> or just take a picture with your phone. All right, now that's enough, and you can ask me later for the PowerPoint slide if it's still taking you time to write that down. All right, second thing, declared righteous does not mean God sees me as holy when I'm not. So what does this thing of justification mean? Before we can look at what it means, we first have to look at what it is not. There's a lot of irresponsible kind of armchair theology being done these days. And again, people throw around terms, and I kind of get what they mean. Or I kind of get what they want to mean, but then it turns into this other thing that is not in the Bible. And so one of the things, the reason I want to hit this one specifically is because this one is commonly said. It's said in popular books, and it's commonly just said by Christians in the radio and sung in the songs, that somehow God sees me, that being justified means God sees me as holy when I'm not. So you know, John Doe is on his computer looking at some bad pictures and somehow God doesn't see him sinning because he's a Christian now. So God, I know, what does that even mean? God doesn't see him sinning there. Like it sees him as holy. Well, what does that even mean? Does God kind of blank out? You know, the angels ask him, where was John Doe last night at nine o'clock? I don't know, I kind of blanked out for 15 minutes. <laughs> John Doe cheated on his taxes, okay? I don't think there's any John Doe's here, so we'll just use that name. John Doe cheated on his taxes. The angels asked God, by the way, where did John come up with that extra 15 grand this year? And God goes, I don't know. I blanked out when he was with his accountant there at tax time last year. What does that mean? God sees you as holy when you're not. What does that mean? Like we throw around these phrases, but we don't actually think it through. To be holy is to not sin. So, and this is why I'm passionate about this, because we actually make words meaningless by our, by our uncautious use of them. So we say God sees me as holy even when I'm not. The word holy then becomes meaningless because holy means to not sin. 
So how can God see me not sinning when I'm sinning? How does that even make sense? It's actually nonsense. And, and by the way, some of you are thinking, oh, that's horrible. I wanted him to see me as holy when I'm not. Actually, I'll tell, I'm going to tell you what the good news is. At the end of this message, you're going to see that the real news of how God sees you in your sin is much better than him pretending you're something you're not. It's much better than that. But it's very clear in Scripture. It is incredibly clear. And we could spend hours going through the passages. I'll just give you a few examples right now. That God does not see us as holy when we aren't. Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira are a married couple in the early church, okay? They sell a piece of land, and you can go back and read this for your homework, Acts chapter 5, verses 1 to 11, I think. And they sell a piece of land for money, okay? All good. They decide not to give all of it to the church. All good, okay? You don't, newsflash, you don't have to give 100% of your money to us here at the church, Okay? If you want to, that would be great. Okay? Just kidding. It, but uh, uh, you don't have to. Ananias, Ananias and Sapphira didn't want to give all the money from the sale to the church, and they didn't have to. God was not mad at them for that. But they decided to lie about it, and that was a problem. They wanted to look like they wanted everybody to think that they had given 100% when they hadn't. And so they went to Peter. And they told Peter, and actually it happened one at a time. And Ananias goes to Peter and he says, uh, here's all the money we got from the sale. And the Holy Spirit tells Peter they're lying. Okay, now first of all, if God saw Ananias as holy when he's not, how did God know he was lying? And then you know what the Holy Spirit did to Ananias? He actually took his life. And then Sapphira came in a few hours later, not knowing what had happened to her husband. And, the Holy Spirit, and she also, uh, you know, kept the lie and, and said the lie and told the lie. And the Holy Spirit took her life too. And you know what it says? Great fear came on the whole church. Why did great fear come on the whole church? Because God sees your sins. God did not see Ananias and Sapphira. They're lying. He go, oh, Ananias and Sapphira. He's got these kind of magically rosy glasses. They're holy. They're okay. He actually took their lives. Now, I think Ananias and Sapphira are going to be in heaven. At least I hope so, because there's a lot of us here who have done a lot worse than that. Is that not true? The point isn't here, did they lose their salvation? That's not the point of the story. The point of the story is God most certainly sees your sins and judges them even after you become a Christian. That's not what justification means, that God becomes blind. I'll show you several passages of Scripture here. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 9-10. to So what Paul says this to us, So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. I'm just going to stop there for a moment. We make it our aim to please God. Why would we have to try so hard to please God if he already sees us as holy? Why? If God just sees me, and sometimes here's another phrase that people use, when God looks at me, he just sees Jesus. Okay, now that sounds really cute, and I get, and I get sometimes why people say that. But does God just actually love me for me, or does he just love Jesus? Some people say, he just sees Jesus when he sees me. That's not true. Why did Ananias and Sapphira die? Did, did God want to kill Jesus? Absolutely not. Why would I have to please God if God just sees Jesus in me? Because Jesus always pleases God. So obviously in there somewhere, God still sees little old Chris Dirksen too. And the rest of us. Which is why we need to make it our aim to please him. Now verse 10, for we, speaking to believers. Again, we, Paul is a believer. He's not a non-believer. 
When he says we, he's including himself. That's us as believers. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Each one of us will someday, this is the Bible, not me. Paul says, each of us will someday, this is not the unbeliever's judgment, this is the judgment seat of Christ for us as believers. We'll stand before him and give an account for things done in the body, whether good or evil. Now, how on earth could you be accountable to God for bad things you did after you became a Christian if God just sees you as holy even when you're not? Do you see what I mean? That actually the phrase, and I'm going to come back to it a bit. I again, I kind of know what, what people are sometimes trying to do. They're trying to say that God doesn't, I don't lose my salvation when I sin. God's not mad at me every time I sin. And that part of it, totally true. And we'll get there in just a moment. But to say that God sees you as holy when you're not is not scriptural, first of all. And second of all, it makes nonsense of the word holiness, which means to not sin. So God does see our weaknesses, okay? And of course, Revelation chapter 3. Um, do I have time to do this one? Yeah, let's just whip through it. No, let's go to Hebrews 12. We're going to skip Revelation 3. Sarah, you just skip Revelation 3. Revelation 3, Jesus speaks directly to the church at uh, Sardis and, basically, and tells the church at Sardis, there's a bunch of Christians in your church who have soiled garments. How could God say garments in Scripture? And I said I wouldn't do the verse, and then now I'm doing it. Um, <laughs> but I'm just giving the quick thing. White and holy garments in Scripture symbolize holiness and purity. How could God see the Christians in the church at Sardis as having sold garments if he sees them as holy when they're not? It doesn't make any sense. And there's so many more passages like this. But last of all, if God already sees me as holy, why would he ever need to discipline me? Right? I mean, if I had a magic set of glasses that made me see my kids only doing good even when they do wrong, first of all, I would not be a good parent, would I? And I think some parents actually almost do go through life like that. But if I had a pair of glasses on that made me, every time they did something bad, I actually only saw them as doing something good, I would never discipline my kids, would I? Because I would never see them doing anything bad. And if God sees us as holy even when we're not, he would never have to discipline us. If God only sees Jesus when he looks at me, he would never need to discipline us because I'll tell you something, Jesus doesn't need discipline. Did you know that? Jesus doesn't need discipline. But the New Testament says, I do. Hebrews chapter 12 says this, verse 4, starting in verse 4, in your struggle against sin. Why would we need to struggle against sin if God already saw us as holy? But I'm becoming a bit of a broken record. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. In other words, we're actually supposed to, there's supposed to be a struggle in our lives to stop sinning. It should actually cost us something. Verse 5, and have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. God disciplines us. In fact, if you don't have any discipline in your life, that's what it's saying here. It means he doesn't love you because we're all in need of discipline. That's what the Bible says. Verse 7. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? And some permissive parents should read this just for their parenting. 
If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good. That why? Why does God discipline us? So that we may share his holiness. Okay? Now here's the thing. It does not say in the Bible that the moment you give your life to Christ, you have been made holy. That's not going to happen until the resurrection. And it's going to be an amazing gift when we actually become holy and pure. We're in a process right now taking us there. So that we may. God disciplines us because he's growing us in holiness. That's what he's doing. He's growing us in holiness. All right? It's not something that's already happened. It's in the future. Okay? And this is such a wonderful prize, okay? He says, well, I've got to discipline you now so that you can enjoy this later. So you can enjoy the fruits of righteousness and holiness later. Verse 11, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, not now, but later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So we're not fully righteous yet. But God disciplines us now so that we can grow in it so that later we can enjoy the fruits of it. We look forward to that day. So now we go back to Romans chapter 3. We've looked at two things. So um, Romans 3, Jesus died on the cross. And now because of that, we are justified. What does it mean that we're justified? Number one, it means the charges that were against us, we have been acquitted of the charges. We were supposed to be, it, God should be mad at us. We should have to go to hell. Death is the penalty. But we have been acquitted of the charges. Because Jesus paid the penalty. Awesome. But now we look at the second thing. Theologians talk about being declared righteous. A part of being justified is being declared righteous. So what does that mean we're declared righteous? And we've looked at two things. It's not. It does not mean we have already been made righteous. That's something in the future. It does not mean that God sees us as holy even when we're not. Which on the, on the front end maybe sounds to some of you like bad news. But actually, I think the real news is a lot better than that news. Okay. So what does it mean when theologians say that we have been declared righteous? And the first thing you need to know is how the Bible uses the word righteous, okay? I think this is going to be really good for you because we sometimes use terms in the Bible in weird ways that the Bible does not use them. So sometimes people think when God declares us righteous, that means he's declaring us to be holy when we're not, and we just think that the word righteous means without sin. But did you know, and, and certainly the, the word righteous can sometimes mean without sin. It sometimes has a connotation when it's used of God. When it's used of the saints in heaven, it certainly would have the connotation of being perfect and without sin. But did you know that the vast, the vast majority of times that you read the word righteous here in the Bible, in the Old Testament and New Testament, the vast majority of times you read that word in here, it does not mean perfect and without sin. Did you know that? And I'm just going to show you a few examples. I could show you literally hundreds, Okay. Well, let's start with Noah. Genesis 6, verse 9. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a what kind of man? Righteous. He was a righteous man. Now, let me ask you something. Was Noah perfect and holy and without sin? Absolutely not. In fact, if you read 9, chapter 9, verses 21 to 24, there is a sordid story involving nudity and drunkenness and Noah. Okay? Noah was far from perfect. Nobody's perfect. 
Nobody is without sin. Nobody is holy like God is holy. Absolutely not. And yet here, it says that Noah was a righteous man. So how is Noah a righteous man if he's not perfect and holy and without sin? Well, the reason is because that's not what the word righteous is used to mean in Scripture most of the time. When Scripture uses the word righteous, what it means is this, a person who walks with God. In fact, it's right here in this passage. Last sentence there. Noah walked with God. See, what you have to understand is when you read through the Bible, I'm going to show you a bunch more examples right away, but when you read through the Bible, the Bible throughout, from the Old Testament to the New Testament, contrasts. I'm giving you some context now how to understand the Bible. We like scientific language. So I want, in the West, we want the word righteous to always mean tick, 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 and this is what it means. But you have to understand, in the Bible, when the Bible writers wrote, they all, they were forever, throughout the Old New Testament, contrasting two groups of people. The people who follow God and the people who do not. And the people who do not follow God, that's sometimes called the world, but oftentimes they are called in Scripture the unrighteous or the ungodly or the wicked. And they're always contrasted with another group of people, which is the people of God, who are often called the righteous or the godly, but most often just the righteous. And what it means is not you're perfect, it means you're one of God's people. You're on God's side, not the other side. The whole Bible is full of people who are God's people who are not perfect. King David was not perfect. Moses was not perfect, right? And on and on and on and on, all these people who were not perfect, but they were of the people of God. And the people of God in the Bible are known as the righteous. It's a contrast between the righteous and the unrighteous. The point isn't these people were perfect. That's not what the word righteous means. It means part of this group known as the people of God. Now when you read in the book of Psalms, now the thing is we intuitively know this because it's all over in the book of Psalms and Proverbs, for example, Psalm 5 or 12, because the, the word righteous is used uh, a couple hundred times or a hundred and some times, almost 200 times in Psalms and Proverbs, and it's, all, it's often used like this. Psalm 5 verse 12, for you bless the righteous, O Lord. Okay, now we read that in our devos and we go, oh, thank you, Lord, you bless us. But wait a minute, you're not perfect. Right? If the word righteous means holy, perfect, without sin, none of the promises basically of Psalms apply to us. But we intuitively know that. The word righteous, when it's, the way it's used in Scripture most often, it doesn't mean holy and perfect without sin. It just means part of the people of God. You bless the righteous. You bless those who fear you, Lord. That's what it means, who follow you who want to know you. Those are the ones he blesses, not the perfect ones. None of us is perfect. Psalm 34, 15. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous. Again, not that in, I mean, if, if the word righteous means perfect, holy, without sin, that means God only hears the prayers of righteous people, or I mean of perfect people, which means he hears nobody's prayers. The word righteous doesn't mean perfect. It means part of the people of God. Okay, and even in the New Testament, the Apostle Peter calls Lot, that's Abraham's nephew, righteous. And if you know anything about Lot, and again, I won't even talk about it from stage because some things are in the Bible, but they're not even appropriate to talk about from stage. But if you read Genesis chapter 19, you will find that Lot was not a perfect and holy man. But he was a godly man. He made mistakes he made serious mistakes, and he was struggled with worldliness at times in his life. 
but he was a godly man. And the result is that Peter calls him this in 2 Peter 2, verses 4 to 10, for if God rescued righteous Lot, not perfect Lot, righteous Lot, because righteous doesn't mean perfect, it means part of the people of God. For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. And the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and keep the unrighteous. And there, you see that contrast. It's throughout the Bible. The, unri- the, the unrighteous and the righteous, the ungodly and the godly, it's two groups of people. Okay? And they're constantly being contrasted. So when you read the word righteous, and even when Paul, you know, if, and when you hear theologians talk about God declaring you righteous when you're justified, it's not that God's declaring us to be perfect when we're not. What is he doing? I'm going to put a picture up there, and I don't even know if this will help you. After I made the picture... I thought, what's with all the little dots? Um, but it's kind of people, right? So this is righteous, unrighteous. It has nothing to do with perfection. Well, it has, when it's applied to God or people in heaven, it has the future promise of holiness. But in Scripture, the word righteous just means the people who are God's people. And if you are unrighteous or the people in the world, they're not God's people, okay? So the righteous are God's people, and the ones in the world are not God's people. Now, here's the thing, and this is why ultimately I think God seeing us how we are is better than him seeing as, us as something we're not. See, some of us have this idea that the only way God can accept me into heaven, the only way God cannot be mad at me is if he sees me as holy. But actually, did you know God's love is a lot, is a lot better than that? Yes, Jesus has to take the penalty for your sin so that God doesn't have to ultimately punish you and cast you away from him. But now because Jesus has taken that penalty away, when God sees someone in weakness, when you're in a circle and you're part of God's people, he doesn't look at you and go, the only reason I love you is because I already see you as holy. No. Jesus took the penalty. He looks at someone in weakness and sees them fully in their weakness. He sees you and I fully in our weakness. He sees us fully in the struggles we have. And he comes to us in that, not pretending we're something we're not. He comes to us in that weakness and he says, son, daughter, I don't have to punish you. Jesus took the penalty so I don't have to punish you. And now I'm going to walk with you in your weakness. I'm not going to pretend it's not there. I'm going to discipline you, but that's a lot different than punishment. Punishment is, I cast you out of my presence. I'm mad at you. You must suffer for your sins. Discipline is, I am with you the whole way. Discipline is just another way of saying discipling. I'm going to have to discipline you because I'm growing you in holiness, and actually holiness is for your good, and you're going to love it when you grow in holiness. So I'm going to discipline you, but I'm going to be with you the whole way because I see you in your weakness. He doesn't see you as holy when you're not. He loves you in your weakness. So what does this mean when it says he declares you, when theologians say justification means he declares you to be righteousness? What it means is you have been declared to be in right standing with him. You have been declared to go from the outside to the inside. You have gone from being the people of the world to being the people in a circle of God. You're in his family. You're in right standing with him. You're not, he doesn't see you as perfect when you're not, but he sees you in your weaknesses and says, because Jesus took the penalty, you are in right standing with me, and I accept you in your weaknesses. I don't have to cast you away. I don't have to punish you. That is amazing. And what's even more amazing, this justification thing, so to be justified... You're acquitted of the charges against you, and you're declared to be 
in right standing with God, in spite of your weaknesses, you are now in the circle of his people. And the beautiful thing about this is, it is not based on your feelings. It's not based on how good a week you had. Like this last week, I did pretty good in not doing the don'ts. So I must be good with God this week. It has nothing to do with that. This is a legal transaction that took, that took place. It is signed in Jesus' blood. You were adopted out of the family of darkness and ungodliness. You were adopted into the family of God. That doesn't change because you have a bad day or a bad week. He knew you were weak when he saved you. He sees you in your weakness now, and he says, but because of the blood of my son Jesus, you are accepted and in right standing with me. He loves you in your weakness. Justified. The penalty against you, the charges, you have been acquitted and you are in right standing. And now when the accuser comes and tells God, look at so-and-so, they did this and this and this and this. And God says, yeah, my son paid for that. And when your own thoughts accuse you, and often it's ourselves accusing ourselves, even more than it is the devil, he just exasperates it. But when your own thoughts accuse you, God, I don't feel like your people. I'm, I'm not spiritual enough. I'm too sinful. Look, I did this, 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 and this. And God said, I know. I'm not pretending it's not there. I know. But I saved you in that. Jesus paid the penalty. It's, it's gone. It's done. And I love you in this. You are my people. And really, you know, ultimately, if you want to grow in holiness and you want to grow in righteousness until you begin to understand that you won't be able to walk out of your problems anyway because actually we need God to be with us in order to overcome our struggles. So now as we move to the baptisms, one of the reasons this is such a celebration, this is a celebration, people getting baptized. These people have moved out of the unrighteous, the people of the world and the ungodly against God. They have moved into the circle of God's people and their sins are not counted against them. God loves them in our weakness. God loves all of us in our weakness. So as we're getting ready for the baptism, I just want to pray now. But I just want to pray a prayer of thanksgiving. And really, all I have when I preach a message like this today, I just have words. The Spirit has to take this into our hearts so we can actually grab this. Because if you can ever grab this, how much God loves you, and what it means to be justified, that you are in right standing with him now. You are accepted by him now. You're part of his people, and he loves you in your weakness. It'll radically change your life. So I want to pray for you, and then we're going to see some testimonies and celebrate some baptisms. Thank you, Father, for justifying us in Jesus. Thank you. You see us as we are. You don't pretend we're, we're someone we're not. You love us in our weakness. And you say we are in right standing with you anyway because of the penalty that Jesus paid on our behalf. Thank you, Jesus, for taking the punishment for my sins. Thank you for taking the punishment of our sins so that we can be loved in our weakness. Holy Spirit, I pray for a spirit of gratitude, a spirit of 
understanding, about justification, about how much you love us, about how safe we are in your arms and how committed you are to us. I pray for that understanding to begin to dawn on our hearts and change our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Southland Church. For more information or to download this and many other messages, please visit us at myselfland.com.